Podcast. I'm Alan Cabana of Fox Sports, joined by David Smith of Motor Sports Analytics. On this episode, who's number three? A midseason debate on who is going to fill out the championship picture in the Cup Series, and of course, our big Texas preview. But first, as always, this is episode 70 of Positive Regression. This is the J.D. McDuffie edition. David, a legendary name in both life and death, he holds the record, David, J.D. McDuffie does, of 653 starts in the Cup Series and not one victory. About 620 of those starts came in a beautiful number 70 car. It's an old school name. He raced in four different decades and probably would have gone longer if not for his untimely death. Yeah, and the number 70 is actually the number with the most starts with no wins hmm. in NASCAR Cup Series history. But let's talk about J.D. McDuffie. We can we can go into a little bit about the driver and then about the man because uh, he, he was an interesting character. Just 12 top five finishes, but he did manage 106 top 10 finishes. And Alan, I, I, I went into this mission uh, wanting to locate his best racetrack. And I think I found it. The Nashville Fairgrounds, hmm. where he averaged a 14.1 place finish and where he secured four of those 12 career top five finishes. He led 112 total laps across 29 starts at the fairgrounds, more than every other track combined for him. And 111 of the 112 came in May 1979, a race in which he finished ninth. Unfortunately, he was not 39 years old, but he was 40. Oh, all right. So close. close enough. <laughs> <laughs> he was 40 when the Banner Day occurred. And you mentioned his death, and that took place at Watkins Glen in 1991 in a, a pretty scary uh, looking crash as you would probably expect. But an interesting nugget the night before that race, he competed in a late model race at Shangri-La Speedway in New York and he won it. It was a kind of a celebrity all-star showdown late model race, but JD McDuffie, the final race that he actually finished saw him taking the checkered flag. So uh, had, had a little bit of skill, uh, more so than his uh, Cup Series record would have you believe. Yeah, and uh, like like we said, we, just the name J.D. McDuffie, it, it's it's old school enough, but also new that, you know, even for young guys like us, relatively David, I mean, I had one of his die casts, right? I mean, Racing Champion still made his car. Uh, I had some of those in the early 90s. Uh, memorable for his life and, and unfortunately his death. Uh, David, the cause of his death, kind of the introduction of the term, uh, Basler skull fracture, which took a lot of drivers, including Dale Earnhardt. Uh, there's an excellent book by Brock Beard about JD McDuffie. Um, if you don't know Brock, that, that name right away, maybe you know him on Twitter as Last Car, Last Car on Brock. It, it, you know, he, he goes over a lot of, uh, I, you know, really focuses on cars that finish last. It's, it's a very uh, niche thing on Twitter, but it's a good, it's a good thing to look at once in a while. And I want to say JD McDuffie, he, he may, I read one stat. He finished last more than anybody other than Joe Nemechek, who broke the record, uh, I think in 2014 is what I saw. So, uh, JD McDuffie, a good, memorable name and, um, you know, a lot, lot to look back on in that career. And, uh, he represents episode 70 of Positive Regression. 
Yeah, and and on that subject, I, Brock Beard's book has been universally praised. Uh, so I would encourage listeners to check that out. But as for the character of J.D. McDuffie, which I think hits better than his talent, he embodied the idea that stock car racing was a working class sport. And it makes sense. Uh, stock car racing was founded by moonshine runners after the fall of prohibition. And the moonshine runners were full of war- working class folk. And McDuffie was certainly that within his time in the Cup Series. And nowadays, we see a similar spirit from drivers like Jordan Anderson in the Truck Series and maybe Tommy Joe Martins in the Xfinity Series. Drivers doing a lot by themselves to make their careers happen. And I know the Cup Series has evolved into a series far too sophisticated and too rich to allow for something like this. But I think McDuffie would have found a home in the truck series had their existences aligned. Um, He was that kind of driver. And that's what I think of when I think of J.D. McDuffie. Well said. All right, let's get this episode started, David, because we are cranking into mid-July here in the Cup Series. And look, a lot of the storylines, as they should be, are directed at Denny Hamlin and his wins and Kevin Harvick and his just sheer dominance, really. When he's not winning, he's getting top fives and leading laps. And even when you don't think he should be, he's uh, pretty much dominating the Cup Series this year. So well, we talk about those two a lot, as we should. Uh, but David, you, you pondered and asked me the question, who do you think number three is? And I, it was a good question because I really had to think about it. So that's what we're going to dedicate some time to right now. Who is number three in the cup series? And it's important to think about because no matter what, when we get to Phoenix, there will be four teams competing for the title. It won't just be Kevin Harvick and Denny Hamlin, if should they both make it, but there will be four title contenders. So it is important to look at who could fill that out. David, was that kind of on your mind when uh, when you asked me that question, just thinking about who the third best team is? I spent a lot of time Sunday night after the Kentucky race just thinking of who is most likely to comprise this year's championship four. And, I, and I'm not thinking along the lines of statistics. I'm more thinking of form and believability. I struggled to come up with with the third driver, much less four drivers. So I, I, I texted you this and I asked you, who is your number three? There was no hesitation in your answer. And I almost got mad at you because <laughs> I was having this, I was having this just inner meltdown if I would come up with a driver and a team that have been really good. And I also have a litany of questions about them. So I think that we've hit kind of a point in the 2020 season, and I I really don't know how regular this is for each Cup Series season, but I'm to a point where there is a clear top two, and there are a lot of good teams beneath them, but those good teams have questions that I think just completely shoot holes in the premise that they are destined to compete for a championship. So I want to go through some of the names that popped up in my head. But first, let's please touch on your driver because you were hell-bent on this answer. Yeah, well, you're going to be even more annoyed because I answered so quickly because of your teachings, David. I mean, you helped me get to this answer so quickly, so it's going to make you even more annoyed. My answer was a quick 
Martin Truex Jr. and the 19 team. I think uh, they emerged, especially after that Kentucky run. Uh, and I say that so quickly, David, because I listen to you. I believe in the speed that they are showing because they are showing a lot of speed when you look at the, the speed rankings, but also the, the, the finishes that they haven't got in the first half of the season. And you sh- you've said it before. He is primed for positive regression in the second half of the season. So when I think the 19 team, when I think Martin Truex Jr. and what they're capable of and what they haven't done so far this year and what they should be doing, I think we're going to see that in this run-up to the playoff. And we saw some of that in Kentucky with the speed they had there. Um, on a not-so-deep level, I mean, once they got caught uh, in inspection cheating or whatever you want to call it on, on Sunday, I was like, oh, boom, the 19 team is back, baby. I mean, because that's what they're good at. I mean, they're good at pushing the boundaries. And when they push those boundaries, you knew they were going to go out there and be good because they were working on something. So I just thought that was funny. When, when they got caught in inspection, I was like, all right, they're going to be really fast today. <laughs> and uh, and they were. And they probably should have, uh, you know, easily could have won that race if things break differently on Sunday. Um, but... You know, like I said, where the speed is, where what they haven't accomplished and what they are capable of. And David, you updated your website, Motorsports Analytics, this week. And in the last eight races, that team is second in terms of central speed. So they are fast, they are capable, and they are due. So I think right now, the 19 team of Martin Truex Jr. and James Small, they are the third best team in the Cup Series. I really enjoy the the fact that they got caught... Uh, attempting to do something nefarious is why you like them all of a sudden. That's hilarious. I, True story. I, I, when I, I love, saw that, I love I, it so much. I put it right in my fantasy lineup. Honest to God, even though they had to start last, <laughs> straight to my fantasy lineup. I'm like, they are going to have a great day today because they are trying real hard. <laughs> okay. So we've talked earlier this season about the the litany of mistakes by the 19 team and it was it wasn't just the driver it was the driver and it was the crew chief charlotte comes to mind the coke 600 the pit crew has been uh mistake prone at times and lest we forget on the final day of the 2019 season the 19 car was the fastest car at homestead and did not win the race primarily due to a catastrophic completely avoidable mistake. Now, they are not making the same mistake over and over. So this isn't something that you would necessarily point and laugh at. As you said, they appear to be trying, but they are also inventing new ways to cost themselves <laughs> good finishes. And I I ask, at what point do all of these mistakes stop being one-off aberrations? How big does their rap sheet have to be in order for us to say that this team is wildly talented and has a high speed potential? As you mentioned, second across the last eight races on the non-drafting tracks, but they are also perhaps highly disorganized and undisciplined. Like how, how, how many more mistakes will it take for us to say that? Because if, if we're not there now, we're close. That's what I think. <laughs> All right. 
I mean, that's fair. And look, it's a new team, new crew chief. I mean, a new crew chief, at least. And I think those things kind of work themselves out. I mean, you get a little rookie stripe, if you will, or, or some benefit that benefit of the doubt. And as we get more races, you know, maybe they're, uh, you know, these dumb terms that we use peaking at the right time, but maybe the experience level, at least in terms of decision making and being on top of the box. Uh, it's only going to get better, I think, for James Small. So I, I think hopefully those mistakes go away if you're a 19 fan. Yeah, that might be true. The, the peaking at the right time thing, there's probably more truth to that. It isn't actually peaking. It it might be just having all of your ducks in a row and not making mistakes. But I think this team certainly could make the championship for. I think their top-end potential is huge. All the components are there. When we talk about Martin Truex, we talk about a positive surplus passer and a good restarter. Uh, a driver who's still doing seemingly everything right on the racetrack, although that attempted pass on Kevin Harvick at the end of the race at Kentucky looked a little bit rough. Uh, I've seen Truex look sharper uh, <laughs> when attempting to pass to the lead, but that's neither here nor there. I think they are their own worst enemy. And often this season, they have had an incredibly difficult time overcoming themselves. So, so, from where I sit, their biggest hurdle isn't Harvick and Hamlin. It's the the team in the mirror. They they have to figure out how to get things right themselves in order to have complete races, at which point then I think we can seriously consider them possibilities for the championship four. All right. Good call there. Um, you know, and this isn't black and white. There is no one uh, easy decision when it comes to picking who's number three right now. That's why we're having this discussion. So I said Martin Truex Jr. first, but let, let's try some others. How about Ryan Blaney? David, you updated the central speed rankings and guess who the fastest car in the series this year is? It's Ryan Blaney. So that's a good argument for Ryan Blaney and the team 12 team to say, you know, getting that win in Kentucky, we could have been thinking about them, David, as something quite different right now. Uh, and when you looked at, I, you know, I, I studied your uh, speed charts, the central speed charts on motorsports analytics. And uh, across the board, he is fast at just about every type of uh, track type. And he's actually the worst, in ter- and not even that bad, but his worst speed ranking, if you will, David, is at the drafting tracks where he may be the best damn driver out there. So things are there are a lot of positives for Ryan Blaney and the 12 team right now and a good argument why they may be the third best team yeah also uh he currently has the fastest car on 550 horsepower tracks hello phoenix raceway mm. how are you uh <laughs> hot blaney you know what this has been a pretty solid transitional season for blaney and i say transition just in terms of his talent and his ability the the ability that we can quantify he's a long run threat now I mean, we've sat here on this podcast and talked about his long run passing numbers being bad and talking about the the fact that drivers take a while to develop and become well-rounded competitors and his passing has turned the corner. It's gone from a negative surplus every year of his career to a plus 1.15% surplus passing value this season he is the uh he was the eighth most efficient passer prior to last weekend's race at Kentucky and on top of that he's always been a short run threat the seventh best restarter all in right now 
And Alan, the, the idea struck me when, while I was watching him finish that race in Kentucky. He's a baby Kevin Harvick. I mean, mm-hmm. he, he really is. He's extremely aggressive. Uh, and we've seen that on the drafting tracks, but he also has the mental wherewithal to pick his spots. Uh, just, I mean, for, uh, for an example, when he is restarting and what is very clearly, uh, a disadvantaged position, a non-preferred groove spot, there is no forcing it. I rarely see Ryan Blaney forcing things on the racetrack. Um, so when he does need to be conservative, he just takes the conservative route. But when there is an opportunity for aggression, he picks his spots wisely. And that final restart at Kentucky, he attacked with some vigor. I mean, it, it was impressive. He didn't get the win, but that's kind of what you have to do against another really good restarter in Kevin Harvick in order to score that win. So that is good. Now, I do have questions. The finishes. You mentioned Kentucky is a possibility, but he finished second in the Daytona 500. He finished third in both Charlotte races. He finished fourth at Atlanta. He finished second at Martinsville, third at Homestead. And I'm not going to include Las Vegas, but even then, (laughs) that was an advantageous opportunity placed on his doorstep like an Amazon box leader on a late restart when restarts are his strong suit and his crew chief Todd Gordon promptly kicked that box onto the front lawn. So that's, that's kind of where I sit because when I consider the playoffs and I think about who has succeeded, Kyle Bush went winless in the playoffs, got to Homestead and had to win that race. Ultimately, you're going to have to win a race in the playoffs and you're going to have to get these finishes. Blaney has what two wins across the last two seasons. That's not a record that screams championship contender. So once the finishes, and I know that they're good and they're good for the current point standings as is. And, and he, it lo- he looks good being atop the standings like that, but does it, I don't know. Does it predict future success in the playoffs? Because I don't think so. That's not the kind of racing and uh, that the playoffs provokes. It's it requires much more. And ultimately, he's going to have to start turning these good outings, which again are quite improved. But he's going to have to start turning them into wins. Valid point, because uh, that's what matters, right? I mean, the the, the idea of the even the the best team being the champion is out the window. Um, we've seen that in years past because it does come down to getting the checkered flag, which is something of a, not an outlier, I want to say, but some sort of intangible, right? That, that you can't just quantify with good, with good stats and good metrics. So Ryan Blaney got to get those checkered flags, but um, let's move on to the next one. Who is number three in the cup series right now? A good uh, choice or option would be, why not David Chase Elliott? Chase Elliott throughout most of this year has had the fastest car. Uh, he has shown that he can win races. Uh, he is, but they've also shown they can give them away at the end with poor pit decisions. Uh, what's good? What immediately stands out about Chase Elliott about what he's doing right, right now in that nine team? Oh, everything that you just mentioned. Oh, that was perfect. He, he has the second fastest car in the series. Seventh most efficient passer right now. 
that's a strong suit. And it should be said that he is the most efficient among this group of drivers that we're discussing. And this includes Harvick and Hamlin. So at some point, as the season draws to a close, this advantage is going to assist him. He doesn't have the wins that his speed would have you expect. Eventually that, that's going to have to come to a head. The, the, those will become, those will become wins. But as we mentioned, there is a question about the crew chief. It, it wasn't just the isolated decision in the Coca-Cola 600 by Alan Gustafson. Gustafson has cost Elliott 47 positions on normal tracks during green flag pit cycles. That is the second biggest positional loss in the series. So you have a driver whose strength is long run passing and the crew chief is effectively taking spots away from you. So the, the two are neutralizing one another in that regard. And that yields nothing really. Um, the other thing, the declining speed, I wonder how much of a problem this is because you're right. He ranked first in central speed until last weekend at Kentucky. And over the last eight races on the non-drafting tracks, Elliott ranks second, which is great, but relative to what he's had this year, um, it's a little disappointing. And he had bad speed at Pocono. He ranked 14th in the first race. He ranked 15th in the second race. The good news for him is this series isn't going to Pocono again until 2021. <laughs> so the, his, his worst track this season is now off the table. I know that the Elliott fan base was irate about the loss of Watkins Glen because I think they all went ahead and put a W on, on the, that, that date on the calendar. Um, but ultimately I think Chase Elliott will be fine, uh, across the rest of the season. He has the speed. He clearly has the talent. The disconnect that I'm most concerned with isn't isn't the recent speed decline that we've seen. It's just the questionable pit calls because we're seeing Kevin Harvick and Denny Hamlin win races based on pit calls and Chase Elliott's team's going the other way. I do want to bring up the speed though a little bit. I have to disagree just slightly. Maybe HMS as a whole. Those first four races, we were singing their praises, right? I mean, HMS did get a lot of praise, but since we've been back, especially the last month or so, uh, I don't, you know, some of it maybe had to do to Pocono or, you know, they weren't strong there, those two mile tracks, what have you. But I think we need to start asking again, is this HMS speed for real? Because what I will posit to you, David, is that even though we had a nine week break because of the coronavirus, we had a break from racing. We did not have a break from research and development. I, I do not believe that any of these teams stopped trying to think of ways to make their cars faster. So what I'm getting at is even though we weren't racing on the track, Teams were playing catch up to or just trying to even the playing field to whatever HMS had those first four weeks. And I think a lot of people either caught up and or passed HMS. Do you think there is anything to my theory about their speed? Oh, I think your theory is dead on correct. Uh, with, with that amount of time, of course, the, the Toyota teams, the Ford teams are going to go to work and figure out what the deficit is. But Chase looked fast at Charlotte. He nearly won the Coca-Cola 600 and he did win the midweek race. He looked fast at Homestead when he just lost to Denny Hamlin. 
I think his fans would argue he should have won Darlington if he was not taken out by Kyle Busch. So the performances have been there for the most part. They've been a net positive from green flag to checkered flag. They just did not end that way. And I think that is masking a little bit of his good speed. But ultimately, yeah, over the course of the season, we haven't seen Hendrick be strong for an entire year since maybe before Jimmy Johnson's seventh championship. Uh, maybe the last time they, they were uh, fast on a regular basis, Jeff Gordon was a, was a race car driver and not in the Fox booth. Um, so we certainly have to see a lot before we believe that they have come back, but I'm a little bit more bullish on at the very least Chase Elliott's ability to compete for a championship, but that could change. It could go better. Um, and as I mentioned with the Gustafson question, it, uh, it could get worse. The separation could, uh, could widen. All right. Next up for who the third best team may be right now, uh, old reliable. Brad Kozlowski, David. I remember at the beginning of the year, you casually said, you know, Brad Kozlowski's good for about three wins a year. And then you later came back to it and said, well, we shouldn't overlook that. That is pretty damn good, right? To think someone could just passively be capable of three wins a year and, and not us think much of it. Uh, so that's why he is definitely in the running in that two team for third best team right now, because they have the checkered flags. Uh, they have that intangible that of Brad Keselowski and those restarts at the end of just how good and aggressive he is. Uh, we saw some of that in Kentucky, just being on the attack, right? I mean, he's just someone we can always appreciate is there at the end, is capable of doing whatever he needs to to get the checkered flag. Uh, some of the speed is there, but not the not the elite speed of the Hamlins and the Harvicks. So that hurts him just a little bit. But they are really good in the fourth quarter at the end of these races, David. According to your stats, I think they have the best fourth quarter speed out of any team. So those are some of the reasons why you could easily put make the case for Brad Keselowski, I feel. Yeah, good shout on the Kentucky restarts. I want to circle back to that. But I know it's fun to say that Keselowski has stolen two victories this season. But as you mentioned, with the fastest fourth quarter speed in the series, and they rank sixth as a whole. So that's how much faster they get as a race progress. That's a strength. This team puts themselves in a position to quote unquote steal victories, but it is not entirely luck. These are circumstances rewarding them for being the best in the series at this one very difficult thing to accomplish. And they've done it without much clean air, I'll say. that That is impressive. And it's the thing that keeps us from ever writing them off. And the, the, the Kentucky restart you mentioned, uh, we talked about it last week on the podcast. We did a Twitter video dedicated to the fourth place position that is the spot that Brad Keselowski was in on the final restart, and he had a bad restart. Oh. That that theoretically, that outside line, that's where Cole Custer made the pass totally. for the win. There's a world in which Brad Keselowski stole victory number three. Um, so 
that that could have happened, but he put himself in that position. He is an all-around driver, positive surplus passer, good restarter, again, ranks in the top five uh, for non-preferred groove retention. But there are questions. Uh, I, I think listeners are hip to... Keslowski's performance in the playoffs in recent years. Mm. And that's fair. Uh, the, the early eliminations are well documented. In getting over that hump, there will have to come a point when Keslowski isn't simply putting himself in good positions late in the race. What seems to be lacking from him and this team, they're good, but they haven't displayed this year, at least, an ability to go out and dominate a race. And that sounds like such a cliche thing to say, but do consider that this is a playoff format that that fosters parity, yes, but each champion across the last few seasons showcased the ability to just boss an entire race, 400 500 miles, and we have not seen that from Keselowski in 2020 with new crew chief Jeremy Bullins, so we cannot categorize him as that kind of driver, and I think that might actually be my only concern, uh, that he lacks this denominator that is common of NASCAR's recent champions. Something worth pointing out, if you are a longtime listener, you know there has been uh, some shade, some some uh, some deserved shade thrown at Jeremy Bullins and his decision-making. And David, I went into this with uh, some bias, thinking and doing the research, you know, where are the questions on the two-team? I thought, clearly, I was going to see Jeremy Bullins' decision-making. Uh, no, it's not this year. So he is improving, at least so far earlier in the season, uh, Jeremy Bullen's decision making, not the problem with the two teams. So uh, maybe a sign of improvement. I don't know how much credit you want to give, you know, for half a season, but, uh, not what I expected. So I just want to give credit where it's due. No, I've criticized Bullen's when things are bad. So it's only fair that I praise him when he's doing well. Uh, he has put Keselowski in good positions. It's a large net positive on green flag pit cycles. But, uh, yeah, I mean, that is, that is a tremendous improvement. And, uh, I know we're going to make some Texas picks a little bit later. It might be because of Jeremy Bullins that I make a certain pick. So <laughs> we'll I'll just that. leave that. I'll leave that dangling for right now. All right. And, uh, finally in contention for third best team right now in the cup series. Joey Logano, uh, completing the, the Penske triumphant. Why not look at Joey Logano? Why, why, why would we look at him? Because he is fast, because he has wins. He currently has the fifth fastest car in terms of central speed. But David, this was the one that, that stood out in terms, you know, the, of the drivers we mentioned, Brad, Chase, uh, Ryan Blaney, Martin Truex Jr. Joey Logano does stand out in terms of what he's not doing with the equipment he has. So th- this might be a stretch to make an argument that they are the third best team right now because they they are not on a good stretch. Well, they have won two races. True. Uh, they uh, he is the best restarter in the series overall. He's ranked third uh, for uh, from the preferred groove for retention rate, first from the non preferred groove, and he won Phoenix. That should matter, right? We, we joked last year 
about what some teams needed to do in order to improve. I know we said this about Martin Truex, yep, yep. but it was to be really good at Phoenix since that's where the championship race is hosted. And Logano is the most recent winner. That doesn't matter right now, but that will be part of the narrative come this fall, especially if he is able to make a deep playoff run. But having said all of that, uh, I agree with you. Something isn't right here with this 22 team. Uh, his passing has regressed from last year. His peer has dropped from last year. Uh, the passing, there's some concern here. Uh, it was a plus 1.58% surplus passing value. He earned 127 positions more than expected across the 2019 season. This year, his SPV is a negative 0.79%. Mm. So it's, uh, he, that means he's passed for 15 positions fewer than expected. And Alan, the concern here mm -hmm. is that last year he really developed as a driver. And I don't know if he got enough credit for that, but his 2019 season was much more polished, more well-rounded than his 2018 season when he won the championship. And that really stemmed from the good long run passing numbers. And that is, that's apparently regressed. And I don't, I don't know what's, what's the disconnect here. Uh, just, uh, in terms of initial track position, he ranks first in his uh, positional whereabouts after one green flag lap uh, at the start of every race, and that's by a pretty substantial margin. Uh, he has been very lucky on these starting grid draws that NASCAR has been doing, but he has not been taking full advantage of it, and he has not been able to get concrete finishes out of a car that contains very good speed. Um, so that's a, that's a problem. There's, there's something going wrong with the driver and the crew chief, Paul Wolf has cost Logano 76 positions across green flag pit cycles on normal non drafting tracks. And that is the biggest positional loss in the series. Yep. I'm so, glad you brought um, it up because when you combine yeah. the lack of passing with the positions being given away on normal racetracks, unfortunately by Paul Wolf so far this year, uh, not good for the 22 team. A uh, black hole of track position, the 22 team right now. So that sounds bad, uh, but he's, he is already qualified for the playoffs. And as we spoke about Martin Truex, last week in that he has time to figure out whatever is ailing the 19 team. Uh, he's already qualified for the playoffs. So is Logano. So there is time to right the ship. Paul Wolf himself is a championship winning crew chief, though not in the current playoff format. Uh, it will be interesting, but there's a lot to like about Joey Logano, but those questions are legitimate. All right, so it's up to you, the listeners. Maybe you can chime in. Let us know on Twitter who you think the number three team is right now. We've certainly given you a lot of uh, choices and uh, data to work with, so let us know. Uh, hit us up on Twitter with that. Uh, good discussion there, David. Let's get to Texas because, uh, you know, we preview the race every week, and as we head down to just outside of Dallas, 
Uh, let's talk about last year because, you know, in, in terms of looking ahead, it's good to look back. I looked up, you know, when we're thinking about what matters at Texas and how you win this race, David, one thing I saw last year is the final two runs of, of the two races in 2019 were 86 and 74 lap runs to close these races. Long green flags. I know it's just one year, but I don't know what you take from that. But what do you look at when you think of how this race could be won? Strategy. Strategy wins it. Oh my <laughs> gosh. It, and, and you know what? The complaints about, uh, the lack of long run passing last weekend at Kentucky by the competitors were loud and there was truth behind it all. And I think you're going to see more of that this weekend, but there's going to be a pretty big difference. The teams and crew chiefs will be better prepared for this and we'll strategize around it. So I think we might see something creative in that regard. This is a 500 mile race. It is going to be both tiring and hot and not to trivialize what the drivers are doing, but I think this race will be won on the pit box. We've seen Rodney Childers on behalf of Kevin Harvick and Chris Gabehart on behalf of Denny Hamlin. Those are the two most recent Texas winners, by the way. But we've seen those two teams turn recent races into isolated contests between one another because, frankly, they can. They have the wins. They're locked into the playoffs, and they can askew stage points as they see fit. During green flag pit cycles, both are apparently looking to jump and have been pretty aggressive in that regard. Gabe Hart especially. Uh, Alan, he's had nine pit cycles in which he gained Denny Hamlin multiple positions. That's the third most in the series. And if you'll recall, he was suspended for four races. So he is getting after it in that regard. These kind of big gains uh, should be equally as important. Jeremy Bullins, hello for Keselowski. Easily the most impressive year in terms of strategy. We can quantify that. Five cycles containing gains of five or more hmm. positions. Eric Almarola has received four. Kyle Busch has received four. And I think that is telling for their MO this weekend. This race should come down to how fuel runs are pieced together. So look no further than the teams that have already been doing this very well at a high level. All right. And so then that's, you know, in terms of strategy, especially if it ends on a long run, that will be obviously of the utmost importance. We can still talk about the restart dynamic. We love doing that, though, David, in case there are a few late restarts. This gets crazy at the end. Uh, what, what should we be looking at in terms of lines? Because remember, Texas has two uh, different corners, the, the opposite ends of the track, and it's uh, kind of turn one and two that are I'd call the weird one now, right? Not, not the normal one. So uh, what should we look at in terms of lines and restarts at Texas? The outside groove moves the best. I think that part is inarguable. Uh, in the spring race in 2019, the outside groove retained position 71% of the time compared to the insides 34%. Uh, that disparity increased in the fall to 88% to 31%. And in the fall race, uh, the front row, the two cars on the front row, 
saw even retention, about a 71% clip. So they're probably going to keep their spots, and there should be some nice positional battles if there is a restart just on the front row. But deeper in the field, that is where we will see uh, some some really uh, problematic disparity. Cars running fifth and seventh saw combined retention rates of nine percent last combined. fall, <laughs> with with a combined loss of forty two total spots. Ooh. So uh, that is unfortunately the spot that. They're going to have to avoid. There will not be a choose rule at Texas, uh, so that's going to that's going to cost some folks some spots. Yeah, all right. Think about that when you're watching uh, any restart, but especially late race restarts. Uh, we talked about you know you're always updating the speed charts. We talked about specifically who is fast on mile and a half tracks, how important that is. Obviously, the bread and butter of this NASCAR series. Uh, but who isn't fast, David? I think is the opposite end of that, and uh, something to look at if you are something of a gamer or fantasy player or just want to get good at predicting what we could see on Sunday. Uh, who Who is not up to snuff right now, especially on 1.5 mile tracks? Yeah. And this is a good question because this is really going to try our eye test because what we see might be lying to us. And the reason for that is clean air. So Stuart Haas racing outside of Kevin Harvick, their speed on intermediates this year. Not great. They <laughs> rank 16th with Clint Boyer, 17th with Eric Almarola, and 25th with Cole Custer. And all three of those teams have had moments this year on the intermediate tracks. If we remember Boyer at Atlanta leading, Almarola led a lot of the Kentucky race. Custer won at Kentucky. I said it before. I'll say it again. Clean air is a hell of a drug. <laughs> once, once those cars are buried in the field, they need some help either, uh, from, from a strategy perspective or a late race restart in the field clusters, but they need help getting back up through the field because the dirty air speed, not there for the Stuart Haas bunch, but. Clean air? Yeah, you wouldn't, uh, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference now, would you? All right. So choose at your own risk when making some of your choices this weekend. Now it's, uh, everyone's favorite time. It's time for contrarian contenders. Before I get to this week's picks, David, I'm going to pat myself on the back. Once again, Christopher Bell coming through last week with the top 10, a little overshadowed by Cole Custer winning, but whatever. Christopher Bell got the top 10. So, uh, Good job there on my help, my part. I'm on a good roll. David, you're changing it up a little this week with our contrarian contenders because you noticed last year's race in Texas, uh, November 2019, the bottom half of the field featured a lot of big players. A lot of people didn't have a good day in Texas last year. And you suggested, why don't we pick from the bottom of last year's uh, November field, the finish, who amongst those 20th through 40 may do well in Texas this year, now that we're back around. So I'm going to let you go first and ha- let you have the first pick and explain why you changed it up this week. <laughs> uh, I found it interesting. There there are a lot of names. Uh, Chase Elliott, Denny Hamlin, Jimmy Johnson, Brad Keselowski, all all down there. Not a, a who's who of drivers who didn't perform very well. I do like Chase Elliott to perform well on Sunday. Again, I'm a little bit more bullish than you on his speed, but he did uh, finish 32nd last fall. 
But uh, here we go. Here is my make good for <laughs> Jeremy Bullins. I'll place a vote for Brad Keselowski here uh, for for many of the reasons that I discussed about his title chances. Uh, Bullins doing work, uh, the things that I've criticized. He is doing very well, and especially when there are late cautions. Keselowski's there. We saw him and Bullins avoid the lure of fresh tires at Charlotte before winning the Coca-Cola 600, uh, which is also an intermediate track. And uh, I, if this race ends on a short run, it's Keselowski. I mean, he has been across the last few years. Uh, he is a former Texas winner. He's a recent Atlanta winner, a recent Charlotte winner. Uh, I think this is one that would suit him, especially if it ends on a short run. Now, if it ends on a long run, my pick becomes null and void and I'll happily default to <laughs> Denny Hamlin, but Asterisk. I'm gonna, I'm gonna foc- uh, focus on, uh, Keselowski. Yeah. And look, I, I like the, the twist on this game. I think Denny Hamlin's just too easy of a pick. So I'll go with Chase Elliott. I'm just gonna rely on good old passionate speed. What is that Eleanor Roosevelt quote, right? A <laughs> good old American badass speed, something like that. Um, but, uh, no, but I mean, look, Chase Elliott has it. He's obviously been in position to win. David, we've, we've been over his resume may even in this uh episode of the podcast and maybe it is time to just uh, get one back for old alan gustison and not come in for tires late but uh you know of that of denny brad kozlowski who you picked uh jimmy johnson and chase elliott of those four i'm definitely going to go with chase elliott uh to come out and have the, the best finish if not get out there for a win and if i'm picking a true contrarian contender i'm rolling the dice with Bell again why not i'm gonna ride a good thing there too <laughs> You know, uh, the, the, the one name that I, that I considered just because of how well he did last year at Texas. I mean, it was, it was the side of maybe his best performances, though the results don't state that, but it was Jimmy Johnson. And if, if you want to see him have one final win before, before it's over, you, you kind of think it's going to happen at this place, right? I mean, this is the one, track where regardless of his ups and downs of of his career it's sort of been the rock for him he's performed very well and uh and i don't know i I think there's something interesting there so i i like that bottom half of the field from last november i'm just curious to see how each of them can turn it around because uh this race, just if it comes down to strategy, could be more wide open than we expect. Certainly. And uh, Jimmy Johnson win, that would be a good uh, thing for storytellers. And uh, who doesn't love a good story? All right. Good episode. Don't forget, we are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, and Luminary. We're available no matter your device. Our entire catalog of episodes is available for free at posregpod.com. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or review. That helps so much in spreading the word. We, of course, notice, and it is appreciated. If you have any questions, comments, send them to us on Twitter. We love interacting. We love answering. You guys have great questions. We're at posregpod, P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D. David, I mean, it's only you know early in the week still, and you've already been hard at work. So what else are you working on? Yeah, we might be talking about this uh, come next episode, but this week on Motorsports Analytics, I am launching a subsite looking at the open market values of each Cup Series driver. How much money are they all worth? I have 
spent a lot of time talking with agents and team executives just trying to get this right. Uh, but these are dollar estimates uh, that are close to true, making sure valuations are accurate. It is a model of my own design, the open market value. I have also created a handy free agent tracker that uh, everyone can now use as a resource. No more Google searching for NASCAR free agent list. I have you covered there. And all that will be available for free at motorsportsanalytics.net backslash market. So check that out. You wanted nerdier? He just gave you even nerdier. It's going to be awesome, David. Congrats on work and all that. Make sure you check out Motorsports Analytics. I get a lot of good stuff off that, especially uh, preparing for this podcast. Uh, David, I'm heading to Texas for the truck race. I'll be on pit road on Saturday night. Uh, Kyle Busch's last one of the season, so we'll see what he can do. Uh, he's only won two out of the four, so it, it, he is beatable. We know this. We know this. So that should be a good race as we uh, rush towards uh, and look toward the playoff. And just make sure you keep it on the Fox family. We still have Race Hub every night, Monday through Thursday at 6 p.m. Uh, we'll have uh, a pre-show on Sunday, even though we've switched over to the other network in terms of showing the cup race. But we'll still have a pre-race over on FS1, so make sure you check that out. And uh, just follow my work on Twitter, at Alan Kavana. So uh, thank you. Thank you all for joining us here on Episode 70 of Positive Regression. For David Smith, I'm Alan Kavana. Have a great week. Rose Davis, historian and co-host of the sports podcast, Burn It All Down. And now I'm hosting the new season of American Prodigy, all about black girls in gymnastics. For the last 40 years, black gymnasts have moved from the margins to the core of the sport and changed gymnastics along the way. Now they tell their stories. You'll meet trailblazers like Diane Durham, superstars like Jordan Childs, and everyone in between. Listen to American Prodigies on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.